be reading from John chapter 1. We'll be reading the first 18 verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light, which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace." For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Lord Jesus, what a gift that You became flesh and dwelt among us that for all eternity we may revel in Your glory and worship you. Grace upon grace, Lord Jesus, is a good description of you. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Good morning, guys. It's great to be with you, and it's great to, uh, to spend this morning and next Sunday morning on this marvelous theme of the Incarnation. Uh, the second verse of the, of the hymn we just sang uh, is my favorite Christmas hymn. It says, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. What a marvelous proclamation of the incarnation of Christ in, in one verse. <laughs> in the 1828 edition of Webster's Dictionary, which I recommend you get, it's it was written by Noah Webster, a devout Christian, at a time when people still had some sense. <laughs> it defines incarnation as, quote, the act of assuming flesh or of taking a human body and the nature of man, as, as in the incarnation of the Son of God. Uh, the eternal God not only came here where we are, but he became as we are in all respects except our sin. And we're going to spend most of our time this morning in uh, what I consider to be the most focused passage in the entire Bible 
regarding the nature of Christ's incarnation. And that is the passage, of course, that Joe just read. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. We're not going to exposit the entire passage, but that passage will be our, it'll be our outline for the, uh, the things that we're going to consider this morning. John's Gospel begins in a very different place than the other three. Not, of course, because it is a greater or lesser account of Christ, but because through John, God chose to set before us the deity of Christ as the first priority. The first thing that we must know about Jesus of Nazareth. In the beginning was the Word. <laughs> That's how John begins. Now, Matthew's Gospel Gospel account begins by tracing the genealogy of the long-promised Messiah from Abraham to David and then to Jesus, the one who was called the Christ. Mark's Gospel account begins with Isaiah's prophecy of John the Baptist, the one sent by God to announce the coming of the long-promised Christ. And with a similar connection, Luke's Gospel begins one step earlier with the appearance of an angel to Zacharias the father of John the Baptist. Luke's genealogy of Jesus in chapter 3 of the Gospel of Luke traces Jesus the man not just back to Abraham, but back to Adam. But John begins his account exactly where the whole Bible begins. And with the same words with which the whole Bible begins. In the beginning. John very strategically takes us all the way back before anything at all existed except the triune God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Through John's account of Jesus, God makes it powerfully clear that the very first thing that you and I must know about the Son of God who became man is that before He became man, He already existed. Before any created thing was made, the Son already was. In an excellent sermon on the incarnation of Christ, Sinclair Ferguson said, in the infinite distinction between Creator and creation, the Word of whom John speaks is on the side of Creator, not creation. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. The one who is called the Word not only existed from eternity past, but He existed with God from eternity past. He enjoyed with God the Father and with God the Holy Spirit a perfection of love, of communion, of fellowship, of relationship. Perfect harmony. God did not have to create anything, anything or anyone in order to experience love in fullest measure and of the highest quality because love is intrinsic to who God is, who He always was and always will be. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. I've heard many Christians say that if you're talking with a person from certain religious traditions that would have trouble with the notion of the deity of Christ, 
especially Muslims or Jews, that you, you have to kind of ease into it. They say, first, just talk about Jesus as a man, as the perfect sinless man, yes, sent from God. And then once the person has had a little time to digest that, then maybe you can talk about Jesus as perfect God. But the proclamation that the long-promised Messiah would be both born as a child and would be God is not new to the New Testament. And it was not new to Jews when John wrote his gospel. In the great messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, God declares this about his Messiah. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, Amen. Prince of Peace. Now, I, I, by the way, I'm convinced that the designation Eternal Father that we find most of the translations is fine to translate it that way, but what does it mean? Well, the literal, woodenly literal Hebrew is Father of Eternity, and uh, I believe we still use that kind of phrasing today uh, in the same way that God was using it through the prophet Isaiah. It doesn't mean that, that the Son is, is the same person as the Father. What it means is that Christ is the Father of Eternity. We, for instance, for a long time, the scientific community has said that Gregor Mendel is the father of modern genetics. It means he's the forerunner. He is the, the one on whom all of these things that we know about genetics, from whom they, they kind of proceeded. <laughs> Beloved, the reason that eternity has been brought to man is because of Jesus. It's because God came to earth, from heaven to earth and became man. Does that make sense? I believe that's, that's the significance of, of that marvelous verse. John did not hesitate to get right to the point that he knew would be most offensive to his own people. He pulls no punches. He presents no adjustments. He makes no apologies. In the very first sentence of his account of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, John declares the eternal deity of the one that he's talking about as directly as words allow. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I don't know a more straightforward way to say it. The Word was God. Before any created thing existed, the One who is called the Word of God was with God and was God. John declares Christ's deity before he declares Christ's humanity. Because Christ's humanity came infinitely later than His deity. And friends, I'll say again, John was a Jew. The two mainstream religious traditions that have the biggest problem with the triunity of God are Judaism and Islam. John was a Jew. If he didn't pull his punches, neither should we. Wherever we choose to begin in presenting the good news to a lost sinner, our message concerning Christ must declare that He is as fully God as the Father and the Spirit. And that He became as fully man as you and I are, yet without sin.
This is the incarnation. And as we declare Christ as fully God, we must also declare God as one. Uh, and we did that debate at UTD with uh, a dear Muslim gentleman on one side and I was representing the Christian side. The thing, of course, that kept coming up over and over and over is how can you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit being God and just have one God? But, but beloved, the same Bible that declares that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit each are identified as Yahweh, as God, also declares that there is one God. Over and over. It is not possible to believe all that the Bible de declares about Jesus without coming to a Trinitarian understanding of God. It's not possible. The church did not come up with a Trinitarian view of God. The church discovered the Trinitarian truth of God by seeing and contemplating God's written and incarnate revelation of Himself to man. It was inevitable for Christians not to conclude that God is three persons in one essence would have required that the church somehow leave uncontemplated the foundational truth that God made unavoidable by design. John goes on then to say, kind of recap, he was in the beginning with God. He wants to make sure we're getting the point. And then he says, all things came into being by him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Is there anything ambiguous about that statement? How much of what exists was not created by Jesus? Sinclair Ferguson says that in Genesis chapter 1, the word by which God spoke all things into being was not merely a sound, but a person. Let me read that again. The word by which God spoke all things into being was not merely a sound, but a person. And that person is the second person of the Trinity. The fact that John repeatedly calls the Son of God the Word in this great passage is unbreakably connected to the fact that the exclusive action, the exclusive action by which God brought all things into existence according to Genesis 1 was by His spoken Word. Over and over in Genesis 1, the sole action by which God brought each part of His creation into being was God said. And it was. Not God got out His bag of tools and made stuff. Just God said. And it was. And each time God spoke, something that had never existed before came into being. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and it was so. God said, let the earth bring forth creatures, each after their own kind, and it was so. And so on through the first five days of creation. And then God came to the pinnacle of His creation. On the sixth day, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And it was so. John's Gospel begins before anything was spoken into being by God, and it tells us that the Word by which God spoke all things into being is the same Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. 
Anyone who has ever read and contemplated the first 18 verses of John's Gospel should never again be able to read the repeated phrase in Genesis 1, and God said, without immediately and always thinking of Christ as the Word who accomplished the creating. God did not speak the Son into existence. The Son who always existed with God the Father and God the Spirit is the Word by whom God spoke all things into existence. Now, if you have trouble putting your hands around that, that's good. In fact, if you could sort all that out, there'd be something really wrong with you. In fact, you, you would just be wrong. <laughs> I, why would you worship a God that you could get your hands around? In Colossians 1, the Apostle Paul said the very same thing that John asserts here, but in different words. Colossians 1, verses 15 to 17, and He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by Him and for Him. By Him and for Him. And He is, He exists before all things and in Him all things hold together. Guys, He didn't just create everything. He's the one who keeps it together. If Jesus stopped existing, your atoms would disappear. And so would all the other atoms. We find the very same foundational assertion again in slightly different words in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. God, after he spoke long ago in the fathers, to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in the Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. He made all things, and He upholds all things. And then it says, when He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He had to come from heaven to earth to do that last part. Here are verses 4-9 through nine of John 1. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend or overcome it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light. John the Baptist was not the light. But he came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Jesus is the true light. What does that mean? Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. And that doesn't mean that He's a man who did the best possible job that a man could do of telling us what God is like. It means, as the writer of Hebrews makes very clear in Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation 
of his nature. That verse does not say that Jesus pointed out the radiance of God's glory and nature. It doesn't say he reflected God's glory and nature. It says he is the radiance of God's glory and nature. You and I who are in Christ by God's grace have the amazing privilege of reflecting God's glory to men. We saw that when we were in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. But uh, Jesus is not the reflection of God's glory. He was, is, and always will be the radiance of God's glory. Beloved, the difference between reflection and radiance is the difference between the lamp and the light that the lamp bears. Jesus is the light. God of very God. The light shines in the darkness and the, uh, the light is not overwhelmed or overcome by the darkness. And I absolutely believe that that's what, what that, the wording that's used here means. Uh, if you turn real quick over to John 12.35, John uses the exact same word. And it says, Jesus therefore said to His disciples, for a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light that the darkness may not overtake you. Same word. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. <laughs> uh, the idea of overtaking, overcoming, overwhelming. That's what this is about. The darkness does not overcome the light. It's the opposite. What happens when you walk into a dark room and turn on a light? What happens to the darkness? It's gone because darkness is the absence of light. I don't have time for this, but real quick. I mentioned this before. When I was a kid, I went to Carlsbad Caverns. This is before anybody had glowing electronic objects. And a guy turns the light off. It was the first time in my life I could not see anything when I put my finger right in front of my eyes. And then he turned on this extremely dim flashlight. And you could see stalactites and stalagmites looked like for miles. It was astonishing. The light dispelled the darkness. All right, here's the deal. If you want to know what is true, what is good, what is right, what is blessed, you must know the person who is the Word of God. You will not find that truth in yourself or in anyone else except that person. The meditations, you hear a lot about meditation these days. The meditations, the ponderings, the prayers that bring true transformation to our hearts and to our lives do not originate in us. They are not contrived by men. They are revealed by God. They are communicated by the Holy Spirit. They are received by those whose hearts that same Spirit has prepared to receive them. Our prayers are supposed to be a response to what God has made known of Himself. The truths that transform are entirely about the one who in real space and time came down out of heaven to this earth that he himself had cursed because of our rebellion against him. The one who dwelled, literally tabernacled, pitched his tent among us. These are the truths through which God saves lost sinners out of the darkness and brings them into the light of life. They are the same truths that keep 
His redeemed children in that light every day. Truths that transform, redeem, and renew. In verses 14 to 18, John brings the incarnation sharply into focus. And this is where John has been headed since the very first verse. He very deliberately and very strategically returns in verse 14 to the same language with which he started this gospel in verse 1, speaking of the one who is called the Word. I'm going to read verse 1, and then I'm going to read verses 14 to 17, and then a little later we'll look at verse 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 15, John the Baptist bore witness of Him and cried out saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before Me. For of His fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. John tells us that the eternal Word who was in the beginning, who was with God and who was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. The phrase, the only begotten God, is profound. And the Nicene Creed puts it this way. It says, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. In His humanity, Jesus was born of a virgin. But in His deity, He is the uncreated God. And by the way, unlike every other human being who has ever lived, Jesus had no earthly father except through adoption by Joseph. Jesus has only one Father in heaven as He does on earth. Verse 17 of John 1 is John's great reveal. He tells us the name of the one that he has previously referred, previously referred to as the Word. The one of whom all of these incomparable things that he has just told us are true. And his name is Jesus the Christ. In verse 14, John says that the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, it says, of the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, that we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, three verses later in verse 17, he says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So there's the grace and truth shows up twice here. Think about this for a minute. The glory that men beheld in Jesus when he was here during his first advent was not the physical glory of God, right? In his humanity, Jesus was actually nothing special to look at. How do we know that? Well, not from looking at Christian art that always seems to depict Jesus as very handsome by human standards. 
Isaiah 53 verse 2 says, He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. I don't believe that just applied when He was, when he was beaten and scourged. I believe it applied to His whole earthly life. The glory, the glory that men beheld in Jesus was the glory of God's character, grace, and truth. In full display. Grace and truth are intrinsic attributes of God. I believe John is using those two attributes as shorthand for all of the attributes that God declared to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Right after Moses asked God to show him his glory, God put him in the cleft of a rock, and then God passed by in front of him, but God put his hand between himself and Moses so Moses could not behold his physical glory, lest he die. And when he did that, what glory did Moses get to behold? The proclaimed glory of God's character. The Lord, the Lord God, Yahweh, Elohim, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in covenant love and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Grace and truth and all the other attributes of God's character were realized, John says. They were made real to the senses and perceptions and experience of mortal human beings. They were made seeable, hearable, touchable, knowable through the incarnation of the eternal Word who is perfect God made perfect man. Human beings long for an experience that transcends the confines of, of their short and mundane earthly lives. Something greater than themselves. Something more durable and more meaningful than their own finite experience. The one true and legitimate provision for human beings to experience genuine transcendence beyond the things that are common, mundane, temporary, and cursed is a person. True transcendence is not found in an esoteric and mystical idea. It is not found in an altered mental state or in an impersonal force or universal essence. It is not found in any construct that originates from the finite minds of fallen human beings. It is found in God-created union with the uncreated second person of the triune God who took on our humanness and came and lived and walked right here among us. God the Son. John ends this magnificent introduction to his Gospel with this statement in verse 18 that reaches all the way back through the entire history of God's dealings with mankind. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, 
He has explained them. The Greek word that's translated explained here is exegeomai, and I know I'm not supposed to talk a lot about Greek, but I wanna, this is a word that's very well known to Bible college students and seminary students all over the world. It's the word, the English word that we get from it is exegete, to exegete. In Acts chapter 10, verse 8, the same word is used of Cornelius giving a full and detailed report to his friends of an encounter that he just had with an angel who told them to go to Joppa and meet with a man named Simon that we know as Peter. That meeting changed Cornelius' life forever, brought him to life. One lexicon defines this word as, quote, to provide detailed information in a systematic manner, to inform, to relate, to tell fully. Another definition says, to make something fully known by careful explanation or clear revelation. Jesus is the one who reveals God to man in the fullest and most comprehensive measure because Jesus is God. In John 14, 7, Jesus said to his disciples, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Do you see what he was doing there? He's saying, in the whole history of mankind, if you had known me, you would have known my Father. But now you guys, you do know my Father because I've been walking around with you for three years. Philip, Channeling Peter, replied, he said, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Isn't that marvelous? When Jesus was here on earth, mankind beheld the one perfect God made perfect man. But John 1.18 tells us that the incarnation was not the beginning of the Son's revelation of God to man, doesn't it? It tells us that every single time at any point in human history that a human being saw God, the person of the Trinity that he saw was the second person, the Son of God. That's huge. That, that, when I really looked at that years ago, it, it completely revolutionized my understanding of the Old Testament. We must not miss this, beloved. The one who came from heaven to earth did not start revealing God after he came from heaven to earth. He has been revealing God to man ever since God created man. When God brought the animals to Adam and walked with Adam in the garden in the cool of the day, the person of the Trinity that Adam beheld and spoke with was God the Son. Because no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, He has made Him known. You with me? Jesus is the same eternally existing person who over and over in the Old Testament is called the angel of Yahweh and who is very often in those same passages declared to be Yahweh Himself. Go look. It's amazing. 
That divine person met face to face with men many, many times in the Old Testament. And sometimes those men fell down on their faces and said, woe is me for I have seen God. They thought they were going to die. And it's only by the grace of God that they didn't. I used to have a really hard time with the phrase the angel of Yahweh because I know Jesus wasn't an angel, right? Till it was pointed out to me that the word translated angel fundamentally means messenger. The title, the messenger of Yahweh, fits wonderfully well with the understanding that it is in the second person of the Trinity that God, as John says, has exegeted himself to man. As John declares later in chapter 12 of this gospel, the one who came down from heaven to earth and dwelt among us is the same one whom Isaiah saw in a glorious vision, sitting on his throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. The same one of whom the angels called out to one another, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I racked my brain and my thesaurus this week trying to find a single word to express something that is so great in all its facets that it cannot be fully comprehended or even explained. The word unfathomable is about as close as I could get. When we're talking about the incarnation of God as man, the reality that we celebrate at Christmas and have cause to celebrate all the rest of the time. We are dealing with the truth so great in depth and weightiness and majesty that it defies every effort to fully capture it in words, whether those words are few or, or many. And it infinitely surpasses what we created mortal human beings are able to fully comprehend. But this same glorious truth, the incarnation of Christ, is at the same time the most relevant and eminently practical reality that we will ever know every day of our lives. It touches everything. It is the reality that defines our entire worldview, our entire grid for knowing what's true, knowing what's good, knowing what's blessed, and for knowing how sinners like you and me become reconciled with our holy and righteous God. Nothing could be more relevant than that. That which makes the incarnation of Christ at the same time both unfathomable and eminently practical to us who have been saved by the blood of Christ is precisely what makes it the incarnation. The one true religion, the one and only way that sinful men are restored to God is not just a belief system. It is not just a set of propositions about God and about us that we hold to be true. And it is not a mere guidebook on how to improve our lives or how to face difficulties with courage and clarity. The one and only God's sourced faith is all about a person, the creator of all things, 
who entered into his own creation in a manner that stretches the limits of our understanding beyond those boundaries, but that steps right into the middle of man's earthly experience. In real space and time, in real history, the one eternal God came down out of heaven and he became man. He dwelled right here on earth and he, he walked side by side with the miserable likes of people like you and me. Men and women and children got to see him with their eyes and hear him with their ears and touch him with their hands and watch him over and over do things that only the Creator God can possibly do. This is the incarnation of Christ. The hundreds of people who saw the crucified and resurrected Christ and who watched him ascend from earth back to heaven could not contain the witness of the one they had seen and heard. Even though saying so gained them absolutely nothing that men seek on this earth and brought them everything that men avoid. Even though very many of them were persecuted and despised and arrested and mocked and executed, even when the bodies of their fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers and sons and daughters were fed to lions to entertain crowds and used as fuel to light the streets of Rome. Those who still had breath could not contain their witness of the one that they had seen and heard because they had seen God as perfect man. And because they could not contain their witness of Him, the Gospel, the Gospel of the crucified and resurrected Jesus that started as a tiny flame spread like a wildfire through the Roman Empire in a single generation. If you've never read F.F. Bruce's book, The Spreading Flame, get it and read it. It'll blow your minds what happened in one generation. It wasn't spread at the point of a sword wielded by men in order to coerce men. <laughs> it was spread by the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of the living God. The sword that pierces the hearts of men and lays them bare before their Creator to whom nothing is hidden. All of this happened because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We know the person, we know the truth that sets men free because eternal God came down from heaven to earth in person. He took on our humanness he both told and showed us that truth. The truth that, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, the truth that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus spoke with authority never possessed by a mortal man. He exercised control over creation in ways that only God can. He lived a sinless life for 33 years. And then exactly as the prophets said would happen, he was pierced through 
to pay the eternal penalty that, that sinners like you and I owed to God. Dying in our place on the cross. Three days later, exactly as the prophet said would happen, He was raised from the dead and He appeared to hundreds of people. Sometimes hundreds at a time. After 40 days of what Acts chapter 1 calls many convincing proofs, Jesus ascended back from earth to heaven to reclaim the fullness of His rightful and eternal glory at His Father's right hand. And He's still there and He's getting ready to come back. And He has prepared a place for all who come to Him in faith by His doing. The central promise of God to man, the promise in which all the other promises of God find their completion and perfect fulfillment, is Emmanuel. God with us. And us with God. This is our living hope. This is our sure and certain destiny for all who have trusted in Jesus. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us to bring us to God forever. Heavenly Father, how can we declare our thanks to You for Your magnificent gift of the incarnate Son of God? We deserve only condemnation from Your holy hand, but You sent Your own beloved Son from heaven to earth to live a sinless life among people like us to show us the Father putting the holy and righteous and just character of our Creator on perfect display to make Himself the only sacrifice that could ever pay the eternal debt of our sin to You, Lord. And to be raised from the grave in glory so that we who trust in Him alone may soon be raised in glory with Him to live forever with our Savior our Master, our Maker, in the place that He has prepared for us. To Him be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.